0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
0: Hey, I'm here with uh, Matt and John, and today we're launching into the work of Luke Timothy Johnson, who is uh, maybe to a degree a kind of interesting I don't know if contrast is too strong, but, in, but a, at least a different light uh, shown on the person and work of Paul than what we have done with Campbell. And so I think that Luke Timothy Johnson may bring a sort of balance, a different voice in this conversation. And so uh, at least we're going to—this is part one, then— of uh, a discussion. And John is going to be our main informant, I think, here on Luke Timothy Johnson.
1: Yeah. And John, thank you for that, because I think it's going to be quite the education for us and for our listeners. And we originally talked about Having this conversation on the heels of our talk with Douglas Campbell, and we said, you know, obviously he's doing his work from a certain tradition, and we were talking to him a little bit about what that tradition is, and he's kind of coming from a very, a place where he's kind of been all over the map. John and I started having a discussion of like, well, what would that look like, you know, from different traditions, instructions of Paul. From a Catholic perspective or from an Orthodox perspective, and we certainly know what those constructions look like from, say, a Reformed perspective, right? So today we're going to start talking about who was St. Paul and how do we know and why does it matter? And uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, of course, is a leading, perhaps, you know, definitely one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world, and he is coming from, a, from the Catholic tradition. And so, John, if you maybe want to just introduce him just a little bit and maybe just explain to us even what we're talking about when we say that there are quote-unquote constructions of Paul.
2: Yeah, so Matt, you bring up uh, my ignorance, really. (laughs) That's how I got started on this project. Uh, Sort of like you, Matt, you know, went to Bible college. We went to the same Bible college, but not at the same time. And I did a lot of study on Greek, Hebrew, biblical studies, and then never picked up another biblical studies book and went off and did philosophy and theology and realized there was definitely a lacuna in my knowledge, and wanted to come back to that. But in a lot of ways, you know, once you go study systematic theology, biblical studies are often held at arm's length as something else, and perhaps uh, something a little bit suspect. Uh, You know, you don't really have biblical studies per se until after the Reformation. Um, It seems to be a field that led to a lot of suspicion about scripture but then a lot of suspicion about key doctrines that the church has held so it's been good to get back into that but especially through people like Campbell and now Johnson who are aware of systematic theology and aware of the theological conversations that have been going on and very well informed so I found Johnson uh I don't know, maybe through you or another friend. I can't actually remember, but immediately went out and got this book, which is his newest thing. I think Johnson's actually sort of a Luke Acts scholar, um, but now he's writing a book on Paul, and he's writing it at least this first volume in connection with all the work that's been done on the Apostle Paul, especially in the last you know 50 years, but really going back to you know, Schleiermacher and on, when people get real suspicious about New Testament studies and start asking historical questions. You know, who's the historical Jesus? Uh, What can we know about authorship? That more critical vein. And so that's where you get this idea of a construction, which I think was your question just now. So that everybody recently who has been writing on Paul for the most part has offered some sort of construction of pauline theology and they use that synthetic construction to then judge how we ought to read the books of the canon so they eliminate some as being authentically paul and then they eliminate parts of even the books that they accept or they read the books that they accept, almost always Romans and Galatians. Uh, sometimes it's extended to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, and Philippians. Sometimes not all of those, though. You know, you get different, uh, you get different canons. And then they filter that through their construction of the apostle. And so Johnson is going to, in the first chapter, talk about all those constructions that are out there. So in one sense, what may be most readily accessible to people is the fact that we've had this conversation about new perspectives on Paul versus old perspectives on Paul. And he would just say, well, here are two constructions that we're pretty familiar with. Then there's like apocalyptic constructions, which Campbell's doing a version of that, but that's not exclusive necessarily of new perspectives or old perspectives, depending on who you're talking about. And then there's a whole lot of other you know, authors that I'm not as familiar with that offer up these constructions of the Apostle Paul. Uh, One way of thinking about that is like the old perspective's construction was that what St. Paul was about is justification by faith alone, and that that is over and against a type of Judaism or these problematic Jewish opponents in the first century. Or the new, te- the new Perspective on Paul, uh, you get something in N.T. Wright like it's about covenantal faithfulness. And that's a perspective that, or a construction of the apostle that is used to filter what we have, the source material. And all of those are connected to uh, biographical constructions of the Apostle Paul and constructions of his place in first century history. Mm-hmm. And so Johnson's going to take a step back and say, well, are we being honest about those constructions or do they fit within certain uh, social constructs of our own? Like, does it depend on where you're teaching and what tradition you're in, what you're prepared to accept theologically, how big of an impact do those things have on uh, the way we were reading the Apostle Paul?
1: Yeah, and it's, it's quite the uh, different engagement than, you know, someone like John and I learned coming from a very sort of fundamentalist uh, Bible college education. And so that was certainly not my first construction of Paul that I encountered, you know, what someone like Luke Timothy Johnson and even N.T. Wright and some other people are doing. And so, Paul, I want to ask you, and it sounded like you might have had something to add to that, which is fine, but I want to ask you first and then we can get back to John about what your first construction of Paul that you encountered through the church or your study is, but if there was something that you wanted to respond to
0: first then. I can uh, address both simultaneously killing two birds with a single sing- <laughs> that you know you can just look in the, the New Testament and you can pick and choose that one reading of Paul that you would get in a kind that that Paul is kind of a young Luther he's Luther before Luther that we're going to read Paul as one who has a stricken conscience that his conscience bothers him. And this might latch on to, you know, notions of guilt and would read things like Romans seven in this light that Paul is deeply religious, but like a, a Jew. And of course, part of the old perspective is that in some way, the law was unsatisfactory and that there was this striving for perfection and a a keeping of the law and that by keeping the law, one, you know, might be saved, but all of that proved inadequate. And luckily then Jesus comes along and says, well, you don't have to strive to keep the law that you can be saved by the grace of Jesus. You could pick and choose your text, already giving a layer of interpretation to to many texts that is going to fit them into this frame. So that would be, probably that's the reading that I encountered first and is the evangelical old perspective reading of Paul. Now I do, I very much appreciated uh, Campbell's, a picture of this, the the other construct of Paul that is more likely is just the opposite of this. And that is that, in fact, when we read Philippians and passages describing you know, in Acts, and uh, actually Romans and Galatians fit here, too, once you have this perspective in place, is that Paul, in fact, had a guilt-free conscience. He says as much, I kept the law perfectly. In regard to being a Jew, in regard to the law, I was blameless. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that in fact, it's precisely the opposite that we get in, in the old perspective. In this understanding, because of his religion, Paul then could, without guilt, participate in the arrest of someone like Stephen and the murder, so that Paul's religion is the enabling factor in what he will, as a Christian, come to describe. He will describe himself as the chief of sinners. Why is he the chief of sinners? Because he persecuted the church, and he persecuted the church in good conscience because of his understanding of what it meant to be a Jew. To complicate all this, we can add readings of Romans 7. You know, what do you do with with uh, Romans 7, and how does that play into this? In my understanding, that Romans 7 is, in fact, uh, about Paul, but it's uh, about you know the the I there, the Adam. It is a reference back to Genesis. And in referencing Adam, it's a a reference to every man. The picture that I just gave of Paul is one in which it might seem not to fit with that understanding of Romans 7. But what I would say about Romans 7 is that what we have here is Paul's perspective on who he was, the reality of his conscience prior to becoming a Christian— with the insight of being a christian that is he's looking back on who he was and understanding himself in a very different way that in fact he was not conscious that's the thing i think it it actually when you get into the details of romans 7 there is an unconscious work on display here in which The very structure of a deception is such that there is a loss of self-awareness, that one does these things and is not aware of them, and one does what he does not want to do, that is that there's a kind of split. And, of course, that sort of fits with the understanding of the guilt-free Paul or the one who is a killer for his religion, but I guess that we all recognize that there's more at work in any human. And that then is the the perspective there that in fact, we are all striving. there is the sense that we would gain life, and that is the depiction that I think Paul is giving, through the law. Now that we should not mistake with ordinary Judaism. I don't think that it's a problem of the law or a problem of Judaism. But what's being described, and this is Paul's whole point in Romans, is that he's describing the universal human predicament
1: that is shared with Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, there is a a whole sort of world that opens up for you uh, once you make that passage through, you know, Luther. And I mean, you know, for my part, uh, that was definitely my first construction of Paul was, you know, probably the, the late Augustinian, you know the later lutheran Calvin. You know the Paul of Luther and Calvin for sure. Um, and I, and it's probably important to make you know that that passage and to familiarize oneself with that uh, discussion because it's been so central to New Testament studies for you know the last five hundred years or so. But Paul through your classes and you know I was introduced to people like you know Richard Hayes, you know N. T. Wright, James Dunn, and then later on even people like you know Giorgio Gambin and Slavoj Zizek and people like this. And so. The conversation really does widen, and I think even after doing, you know, going through Hayes and Wright and Campbell and these other guys, uh, which is extremely helpful, uh, now uh, adding someone like Luke and Mr. Johnson to the conversation and others is going to continue to move that conversation forward. So, Johnson, I'll just go back to you with the same question: What was your first? Now that you've come and you know, as far as you have, what was your first construction of Paul that you encountered in the church or in your studies, and where are you? where are you going now
2: Yeah I'm sure that uh, through church it had to be something along the lines of the you know an old perspective from uh, various preachers points of view but the first time I self reflectively was studying Paul would have definitely been NT Wright So um, you know this idea then and if you read NT Wright especially when you're young and you don't know what's out there you do sort of get the picture oh well there there's an old perspective uh, that was pretty widespread, and now there may be, you know, new perspectives, but they all share some things in common. And you know, we need to make a choice <laughs> to either stick with the old perspective or go along with the new perspective. And of course, uh, I think what you were just describing, Matt, and what Paul was describing, is it's not like we have, you know, have necessarily even gotten away from interacting with constructions of Paul yet. Uh, But when you add a plurality of constructions, you begin to see, oh, well, maybe uh, the whole picture is a little bit bigger because all of these people are hitting upon different topics. And so I think that's the benefit of holding up, say, N.T. Wright, who is definitely good to get one out of a reformed old perspective, Um, you know, gives people some historical sensibility and widens the conversation. But then when you encounter somebody like Campbell, you realize, oh, well, perhaps uh, it's really not even about justification as much as has been made of in the West. And then, you know, there's that apocalyptic picture of, well, Paul is preaching in a realized eschaton of we are in Christ. And that means uh, what the church is and how we live as Christians is going to be something different. I actually find Johnson refreshing um, as a way to take another step back and kind of reflect on this whole picture, on all these plurality of constructions, because what Johnson's saying is, let's not get too hasty. And I think that's what he thinks has happened, is that people have picked up some sort of philosophical lens or some school of thought, and this is the way they begin to tackle the Pauline corpus, uh, such that they've made it based on their construction. He's saying, what that will inevitably do is short-circuit the questions we might ask about what the New Testament has to teach us, um, and especially those books of the New Testament, a very large portion of which have the stamp of authority, at least within the text, from the Apostle Paul. And this, uh, I think this is why this is so crucial for most people, is regardless of what construction you're engaging, when you go to church, you're likely going to hear sermons based on the entire corpus that is claimed as Pauline in the New Testament canon, meaning that uh, just because scholars may decide Romans and Galatians are the only authentic books, or they you know have a seven-book uh, canon of Paul's works, when you enter into the church, it's always been the case that what is claimed as Paul's work is going to be preached as Paul's work, and we somehow, we have to deal with that then. And so this may be a problem of, you know, all of these constructions are a product of the academy, and yet the place where most of us go to engage and worship and meet Jesus is the church, and there's a much wider vision of what Paul may have said when we encounter scripture in the church than perhaps when we encounter scripture in the academy.
1: Yeah, and I mean, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, you know, because I can't break my streak of bringing up David Bentley Hart on literally every podcast that we do. But I wanted to add him to that as well, because obviously he's not a a New Testament scholar. But, uh, you know, his translation of the New Testament has been very uh, helpful to me. And just the way that he, the work that he does, for instance, in the postscript, where he's coming from an Orthodox perspective, right? And so a lot of this conversation, obviously, is taking place within the context of, protestant biblical studies and so once hard just and you kind of get the sense of some of this happening and in, in people like right and others but whenever hard just comes out right out and says from an orthodox perspective that well you know paul was never inveighing against good works in any way i mean you know he was talking about works of the law in terms of kosher laws circumcision you know washings and things like this but Paul was all for good work, and just the way that he kind of puts it like that, because of course, from an Orthodox perspective, there's a synergy that's happening there between faith and works. And of course, uh, I would think that for you know Luke Timothy Johnson, then there's a very similar thing. But I guess my point is, is that once you make that passage through Luther, Calvin, you know, late uh, Augustine, and all the sort of you know 19th, 20th century uh, New Testament scholars, the mo- i mean, even Karl Barth and most of these guys who were who were Protestant. Uh, you do end up with perhaps like a very different
2: Paul, right? I mean, is that is that fair to say, John? Well, I, at first, I want to push back on something that you are claiming just a little bit, and I want to see what you do with it. Okay. Uh, you know, you're saying Hart is coming from an Orthodox perspective. In his New Testament translation, in his footnotes, and in the postscript, you know, Hart has no problem making moves that would be found in the German schools of thought, whereas he basically says, "Well, this bit doesn't sound like Paul. Um, I think it was added in later. I'm not going to take that part seriously." Mm-hmm. Right. That's actually what Johnson's warning against. So Johnson's saying historically, and from the perspective of. Somebody that says, well, the church um, had early textual critics. Jerome decides that Hebrews isn't Pauline, even though there had been earlier manuscripts that paired it with Pauline work. It's not as if they weren't thinking critically about scripture. None of the works that are canonically attributed to Paul had been questioned up until the time of Schleiermacher. And so he says that's not, you know, that's not really an argument to say that they're all authentic but he wants to look at the way we treat ancient texts and what would have been plausible reasons for uh, discrepancies of style, which is often what people will uh, claim, or discrepancies of doctrinal issues. And he says, well, that's sort of unfounded because the only way you can say there's a discrepancy is if you decide what the standard is. And there's no more reason to choose, say, Romans then there would be to choose Philemon or uh, even First or Second Timothy or uh, say Ephesians, Colossians, some of these books that are much more highly disputed. So why is it that Romans and Galatians are never disputed? Well, they're not disputed because they teach what Protestants like, <laughs> you know. And so he's saying that's always at work. So in a way, it seems like you know Hart has not actually left that tradition of Western. Uh, biblical criticism in the sense that he wants to say, well, this doesn't fit because I don't think it fits with the rest of Paul that I like. Uh, Johnson would just point out that we're sort of working fallaciously when we do that because we we have to put ourselves in the place of the ones who get to pick what the standard is. And there's no historical evidence to choose one standard versus another. So that's part of the move that he's making against a construction of paul because ultimately what happens when people make up a, a construction of paul and he's so he's admitting that he's also doing a construction his construction is just the canonical paul but what happens when people make a construction is they've always done this to either dismiss doctrines that they don't like so you have people wanting to hold to uh, Paul's work about being, you know, it's about justification, individual salvation over and against this apocalyptic vision of a cosmo, a cosmological salvation, say in Colossians, or vice versa. Or, you know, later we have trouble sometimes with like the pastoral epistles. And so we want to some way discount those rather than find, you know, we could Actually, read in different ways and see that Paul is still just as revolutionary in his time as we need him to be for us and how we ought to apply those scriptures to our modern day. So, I'm not for sure if Hart really is um, giving us a departure from more Western critical views of the New Testament.
1: Yeah, that's. is. That's good. Maybe we can, uh, hopefully, we can get him on one day and, and ask him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, so you have guys like Luther saying, you know, that James is an epistle of straw. You thought, know? mm-hmm. you know, so it's, True. Uh, I mean, these are all fair points. And I want to, before we, we ask John about Luke Timothy Johnson specifically and what he has to say about source material, Paul, what do you think about all this sort of, uh, this sort of stuff about the acceptance and exclusion of source material.
0: I, I liked C.S. Lewis on this, and of course Lewis was a literary specialist. You know, this is really that he had devoted his life to this. and But it, it is an event in his life. You know, he writes The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, and he, he had become quite famous, you know, and even in his own lifetime, so much so that a young scholar decided that he was going to trace out the genealogy, you know, try to find the various source materials for the lion and Narnia and the various people. And he wrote a a quite extensive scholarly work that Lewis says was just fascinating. The, you know, the depth of detail and the, the places from which the borrowings took place and Lewis said it was brilliant, minus one small factor. It was completely fallacious. <laughs> it had no truth whatsoever in it. Uh, I think that's sort of the way that uh, German higher critical understanding or higher criticism that it has functioned. You know, this was a, a work. I would point out I introduced this to both you guys. The work of Gerhard Mayer, who in fact was teaching at Tubingen and was directly familiar with the rise of a higher critical mm-hmm.
2: understanding. And was well, the Tubingen School, right? No, I mean, the, the, the Tubingen School is the. I'm just saying it all starts there with F.C. Bauer. Yeah. Yes, it all starts there. It all starts there, which is very confusing.
0: Here you have this. Uh, kind of very impressive German scholar and many years ago, I think he's saying something very similar to what I'm hearing you say Johnson is saying. And that is that mm-hmm. he questioned the whole basis of the rise of the, this approach in terms of the canon. He is very conservative in saying we, you know, we, we accept the canon. The, the other, uh, person to, that arises is a woman that, named uh, Etna Lineman, who had, as, was a student of uh, Boltmann and taught in the germ, you know, taught higher criticism, and she came out with several, you know, books on the gospels and the various theories as to which was prior. And she has written a series of books. I haven't heard much of her lately, but a decade or so ago she came out with several books on the synoptics but basically what she's showing what she's demonstrating is that in the german university system so you could come up with about any theory you know and she demonstrates this that you know which one is prior you know there there's a theory that, that of course the way you make your name in in uh, the the academy is that you propose an alternative And so she goes through the alternatives, and she says, you know, the one thing you might notice in all of this, and the criteria in the German university, is that you could say about anything in New Testament scholarship, but one thing you cannot say is that it's true, that the New Testament is true. And uh, interestingly, she, she gives a bit of biography in one of her books that she became a Christian at some point in her own description. In other words, she's saying, I wasn't. <laughs> and then she described herself as uh, kind of an alcoholic, ad- addicted to television, interestingly. And she, uh, she quits the university. She says, if you have any of my books that they're, you know, the, the, in that period, they're worthless. I think she became a missionary to the Philippines, actually. There are people who have broken through this. and But unfortunately, and, and we should not describe this simply as a liberal problem, because, of course, this is a, the fundamentalist conservative issue, too, but it seems like this is the primary engagement hmm. with the New Testament is to in some way hash out either proving or disproving certain things in regard to the canon and in the process losing i think what yeah. someone mm-hmm. like Gearhart Mayer just says well no let's just sidestep this whole thing and it sounds a mm-hmm. lot like what
1: uh luke timothy yes done.
2: yeah they're at least hitting upon the same problem uh, as they set out their projects for sure
1: yeah john i was i was just wondering that i can see how of course right that, that someone who's not familiar with this conversation that we're having They could just say, oh, well, they're just a bunch of liberals. You know, all these folks are just, including the forging plowshare, you know, these guys are just going through and picking what's all and what's not. And, and, uh, right. And and you could even see like a young Bible college student Mm -hmm. or a young seminarian being overwhelmed or confused. Maybe they're coming from a tradition where it's like, well, if the Bible says it, I believe it. That's it. That's that kind of thing. And and it's like, and and that's understandable, right? Because once you start to bring in some of the complexity, you know, to the conversation, it really can start to get a bit, I don't want to say, you know, confusing to the point of like bewilderment or whatever, but it, at least uh, complicates matters, right? And so what is Lou Timothy Johnson doing to help us work through this sort of puzzle or maze so that we can maybe come to some sort of mm-hmm. understanding of who St. Paul actually was?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a good question or a good way of putting the question because he's certainly not shying away from looking at data and evidence and uh, doing the rigorous historical and textual studies. So one of the things that he does is just asks the question, well, what source material do we have? You know, the Apostle Paul is actually not really mentioned in first century uh, historical texts apart from the New Testament. You know, we have to look at the canon. Uh, Well, what kind of apocryphal books are they? Because that's sort of, this is an interesting claim. This is what some people will say that, uh, you know, like the pastoral epistles are, or uh, what Second Corinthians is, or perhaps First Thessalonians is, they're apocryphal. Well, what would that mean? Uh, there actually is, uh, there are rather a few apocryphal books said to be by Paul that are from later. And we know they're from later based on where they get quoted and who knows about them when. And there's a, there's a great difference uh, in one sense in how these books uh, are put together, and the books that are in the New Testament. But the most striking thing, perhaps, is they don't actually add anything to our knowledge of the Apostle Paul, meaning that these apocryphal texts are based on the canonical texts. I guess I should say one thing uh, up front, is to to say there's an apocryphal text doesn't actually mean anything nefarious. It's not as if it's a forgery. Anybody could see through the fact that the apocryphal text wasn't actually written by the, the author that's being claimed. That's the whole point. It's an ancient form of writing. But what that would mean about the letters that we can date back to the first century, because they're all quoted by, say, Polycarp or Clement of Rome or Ignatius, is that you couldn't actually call those apocryphal texts if they weren't written by Paul, because then they would be forgeries, because they would be texts that were trying to be passed off as St. Paul's while the other canonical texts were in circulation, perhaps even within the Apostles' lifetime or shortly thereafter, and that's not a part of the genre of apocryphal text. So he's just going through and looking at what the historical evidence is a bit and saying that we really don't have anything besides the canon. There's a few biographical type texts that obviously draw from Acts and from the canonical texts, but they're not really adding anything to what we know. And if they do elaborate, they're only elaborating on the mystical experiences that Paul notes in his canonical texts, you know, like what is he doing in Arabia? What is he doing in that third heaven type experience? But they're not really adding anything to our knowledge of Paul's ministry or teaching. And so that's key. So he's saying really all we have to go by is the canon, which makes it very problematic then for us to try to decide what the actual canon within the canon is, because we don't have any other standard. This is our standard. You know, we'd have to make an arbitrary judgment at that point. And so this is Johnson's main push in the first part of the book is let's how about we just let the canon be good enough? So let's have this conversation about Paul, recognizing that these are different sorts of texts, and he can explain why you would have different sorts of texts from one author. They're different kinds of letters. They're a different kind of work. And he even follows ancient tropes for letter writing as he puts together these. And so Johnson says, well, we can identify clusters. There's Romans and Galatians follow the same format. Uh, There's the pastorals, which follow the same format. There's uh, you know, Ephesians and Colossians. And so he, he puts together these clusters and says it will bear fruit for us to compare these letters because we get a broader picture of what Paul might have thought or taught. But at the same time, there's no reason to discount the fact that all of these have the stamp of Paul's authority on them. It's, it's really about making the conversation bigger rather than saying we figured out who the Apostle Paul is or the Apostle Paul that we like. Now, let's only talk about that. And I think that's the real danger here. I mean, there's not any real danger of, uh, like, you know, danger to our salvation or what we know about Christianity. If you're a practicing Christian and you decide that Paul didn't write the pastoral epistles, okay, whatever. You'll probably still hear sermons on them. Uh, Your life is still going to be shaped by Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, there's not a huge danger. But we do limit the sort of conversation that we can have or the sort of critical academic conversation that we can have. Uh, So let's stop doing that and be a little bit more open to the canon and then have a wider conversation that will bear more fruit. I'm wanting to
1: bring Paul in here, too. Paul, is there anything you want to say before we talk about how important it is, you know, all this bibliographical information and things like this and what we can know of who St. Paul was? Is there anything you'd like to add uh, or or question about what Luke Timothy Johnson is saying or doing? Of course, we're always in the business
0: of Taking one text uh, and perhaps privileging it in a way that other people might not privilege it—that's just the human condition. We're never going to get away from that, and so we're all in the—we're all doing a kind of critique, or we're all filtering and understanding. But I, I think that what John is describing in a very healthy way in Johnson mm-hmm. is that, well, that if we take the canon as as kind of the given there may be in fact these tensions but i think our tendency is to want to relieve the tension to do a higher critical move and say well that's not paul therefore let's just ignore it and the danger is that of course in throwing out the uh, bathwater, we uh, lose the baby too i think there's a saying along that line (laughs) so much of fundamentalism and conservatism has engaged this problem just like the higher critical that there there's been this combat as if the the main thing was well we have to prove pauline authorship in order to accept the authenticity and I think what John's saying about Johnson is, well, no, that's a little bit too simplistic. That there is a Pauline school or a Pauline mm-hmm. notion of thought, and the canon clearly came to us. But because in some way it must have accorded with that. And so the, the early church was quite happy with this canon. And we really don't have, you know, the whole stylistic thing. The little bit that I engaged Johnson, I thought it was interesting. He was saying, well, you know, the, a, a particular cluster that you might have is First and Second Corinthians. You know, well, of course, we would put those two books together. But actually, he goes through and he shows, well, even those books have stylistic differences, differences of expression that could cause one to, to separate those out. I think that what is being questioned here, first of all, is the whole notion, the point I was making with C.S. Lewis, I think the whole notion that you can in some way trace the, mm-hmm. the, someone's gene, the genealogy of thought or their, their writing style, and you can make broad claims of I just don't think it's actually a workable understanding that you get in the so-called modern scientific approach to scripture. I'm happy just to accept the authority of the canon with this idea. Well, yeah, we're all going to understand that there are some things that are going to be emphasized. There are some things that we, we may recognize that this is not directly Paul. The classic example of this, of course, is the book of Hebrews. I've never had any doubt that Paul didn't write that book. I just don't think he could have written that book. But does it reflect his thought? Does it fit? I think it does. I think it, it, it certainly fits in the canon. Does it cause a kind of tension? Oh, it may, like any book. But the point is, uh, Hebrews is kind of the classic example that we've never really known who wrote that, but somebody knew sometime and they've accepted it as part of the canon. And so let's work with the canon that we have.
2: Mm -hmm. I want to talk about uh, something that Paul said, just to elaborate on it, Uh, this idea of a Pauline school, because I think the way Johnson handles this is really uh, fascinating and it seems like so obvious after he says it. And that's that, um, you know, this is a way in which actually a lot of critics who are wanting to include more of the canon will say, oh, well, there must have been some kind of Pauline school active after Paul. But what's odd about that is they always make it some sort of mysterious thing that we have no evidence for whatsoever in history. Whereas Johnson says that's a strange thing to do when we obviously do have evidence of a Pauline school in history. And it's twofold. So during the Apostle Paul's own lifetime, we know that he lives much like uh, a rabbi who would have uh, work to do. You know, he's a tent maker, and he always has companions with him. He said it was a well-established way of doing things that the teacher would sit and work uh, so that they could make a living. Cynics also did this, by the way, not just uh, Jewish rabbis, but that they would sit and make a living and they would work. And they would teach their students at the same time. Uh, There's plenty of people who would fit the category of student in the New Testament that are also, um, you know, put in these letters as if they're coming from not just Paul, but sometimes Paul and Apollo, sometimes Paul and Sophanes, sometimes uh, Paul and uh, Timothy. You know, it goes on and on and on. And it would have been common for a scribe to record the dialogical lesson between the teacher and the student. And that it would have even been acceptable for that to have been included within certain types of letters that would have not only been read encyclically, like we would think Ephesians is probably read encyclically by many churches, but also letters that were trying to teach something or educate a specific group of people. So there's a Pauline school that we have evidence for within the apostles' own lifetime. But what's more is we don't even have to pretend like we don't know what happened to this Pauline school because you have, first, Clement writing to the Corinthians, to which Paul also wrote to. And what does Clement write to them? Well, he quotes a bunch of things from Paul's letters to the Corinthians. This idea that he was a uh, latter-day, perhaps, student of Paul, uh, even though their lives may have overlapped some. In that he is keeping a Pauline school alive and then through his own uh, epistolary uh, writings. And then you also have other notable figures such as Ignatius of Antioch does similar things and Polycarp does similar things. So we actually do have plenty of evidence of historical Pauline schools that fit well within the canonical Paul and what we already know uh, was happening in the first and second centuries. So when we posit something like that, it doesn't have to be anything mysterious. And I think it's an odd, uh, and Johnson points out, that's sort of an odd thing that critics have done. And so I think this is helpful, too. I may be jumping the gun, Matt, and I'm sorry. But uh, I think it's helpful just to note at this point is that it's not as if when we say, let's accept the canon, that we're necessarily accepting some kind of uncritical plenary inspiration of scripture. Because actually what we're saying is, it doesn't really matter how these letters got written, but we think, or Johnson's at least proposing, that there's no reason to doubt that they didn't all have Paul's stamp of authority within his lifetime, meaning that he was an active participant in their writing, uh, whether it was notes being taken down by a scribe as he's teaching his students in some cases, and then edited together into a letter, whether or not that when we have these several, you know, Paul's companions with him being mentioned in the greetings of the letters, whether or not they actually took an active part in writing these letters themselves or wrote them under Paul's authority while they were with Paul. All those are possibilities that fit well within uh, the ancient practice of authoritative letter writing, you know, writing a letter in the sense of it's going to bear some authority, and Paul's also doing something that's interesting that you can't necessarily find a lot of in the first century, and that the, all of these letters and the canon are claiming religious authority to specific communities. And so that's almost an invention, the the invention of the apost- apostolic letter, if you will. So there's no reason to think that we can't actually even point our finger at what was happening in the first and second century with the Pauline school and paul's teachings and the way that interacts with both the canon and the early church yeah that's that's good uh, for me
1: i guess I'm, I'm i'm grateful you know that all three of us we have faith in the in the tradition so it's on some level we're saying and it's not like an uncritical but this whole thing of christianity is it really is mm-hmm. sort of a movement of faith but to believe in the incarnation the resurrection all these things you know even the you know the inspiration of scripture and that uh, the church gave us, you know, the scriptures and to trust the wisdom of the Holy Spirit uh, throughout that process is an extremely important part of this. And we realize that there are some people who are doing Pauline studies who don't subscribe to that sort of thing. So, I you, you mean, and they're, they're also making valuable contributions. People like Zizek, and I realize that he's not doing like a strict New Testament studies, but he's doing some Paul, you know, he's doing Pauline stuff that's helpful uh, that Paul has written on and other things. And I guess I'm wondering that... Paul spends, though, a considerable amount of time, whether he's before the authorities or in, in the different letters and things like that, giving his biography, right? Saying, well, you know, I was walking down the road and, you know, this, uh, you know, the, this light came and I, I met the, the risen Lord or, you know, here's who I was, you know, when sort of defending his apostolic authority and things like this. And so I'm wondering, it's kind of a two-part two question. First of all, how important is it in biographical information? For St. Paul, can we in any way separate sort of his biography from his his doctrinal sort of assertions? And, and just what can we know about who St. Paul was just in general?
2: Uh, yeah, well, one way, I mean, actually, I think we might ask a question. Do we have very much biographical information? There you go. Yeah. So um, Johnson's very good at just saying, well, Acts is interesting because it's obviously not Paul's words. So all of the sermons in Acts are Luke's construction mm-hmm. uh, based on research. That's fine. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody would have thought otherwise in the first century. So to say, well, that's, those are Paul's thoughts, that's probably a stretch. But what's interesting about Acts is you can actually find similarities in style when Luke quotes the sermons of Paul and Paul's letters, which means Luke did his research really well. Uh, but it also means that we don't have that much biographical or, uh, you know, psychological reflection as we might wish we had. Uh, we have Paul in his own letters claiming a Jewish heritage, a Pharisaical heritage, and, you know, holding that up as something that once was important and now isn't. And he's using that to rhetorical effect. And Luke acts, well, in Acts, uh, Luke and Acts, what we have, is Paul, the Greek philosopher, or at least Paul, the student of Greek philosophy. And sometimes those things have been held in so much tension to say, well, you know, one's obviously fraudulent. What Johnson's willing to say is, no, probably not, that actually the style is is remarkable in the sense that Luke has captured some of this Pauline style in his preaching from his letters, and that what most likely is going on there is they're writing for two different points. So Luke is chronicling this mission to the Gentiles and how the church came to say that's okay and put its stamp of approval on it. This is what the church is going to look like. This is where the church is moving. Whereas Paul's agenda is oftentimes in his own letters to say, hey, don't pay attention to my learning. Don't pay attention to my great rhetorical skill. I'm going to try to give you this message as simply as I can so that you'll accept it on the basis of Christ's merits and not my own. Now that's, of course, rhetoric, you know, highly rhetorical, because if you just look at the canonical letters, you realize very quickly there is a demonstration of great rhetorical skill, and he's quoting or at least making reference to schools in Greek philosophy and things like that. But nothing quite so straightforward as you get in the book of Acts. So you can hold those two things together, but even when we do that, we don't have very much biographical information on Paul. And this is what's perhaps troubling about a lot of these constructions. There's really two schools of construction. One wants to say, here's a Jewish apocalyptic Paul, and the other wants to say, well, here's a very Hellenistic Paul. And uh, sometimes they support one of those visions to dismiss Paul, and sometimes they support one of those visions. Uh, because they want to take that and run with it. But, I mean, a lot of the people who say, you know, Paul is obviously some kind of Hellenistic Jew doing Greek philosophy are making that assertion to be able to say that Paul has started Christianity and that the movement of Jesus has been completely lost, that Paul is actually the founder of of Christianity, and uh, vice versa. You know, you have people saying, well, no, Paul is actually just preaching good Jewish apocalyptic stuff, and we're gonna put our heads in the sand and not deal with Greek philosophy or that whole world of thought. In reality, we don't know. We don't have enough biographical information to know uh, what Paul knew or where he's drawing from. We know that he was born in Tarsus, which was very much a Hellenistic city, but we also know that he was probably raised in Jerusalem and uh, you know, taught by, in the Pharisaical tradition. So those two things are brought together in Paul's life. But as uh, Paul Axton has been saying, for us to assume that based on the limited information we have of Paul's biography and also first century history, for us to try to pretend that we know what the sources of a lot of Paul's thought are uh, would be erroneous. So we shouldn't do that. And that's sort of Johnson's point, that the biographical information is interesting to us And it's interesting in the sense that it forms, uh, you know, a picture of a real person. And actually, the fact that the, you know, Acts is a little bit divergent from the picture that you get in the canonical epistles uh, supports, you know, that this is historical evidence because you're having points of view. Nobody had edited it and tried to make it smooth in the sense that you would just get one picture of who St. Paul was. So that's a great strength, actually, of the New Testament canon. So why is it important? I think based on what we've said about the material and how we get the material and how the church has used the material, what we begin to realize is it's not actually that important for us to be able to construct a historical Paul to then use to decide which parts of the canon we're going to use and how we're going to use them so that we can take the entire New Testament canon, especially in epistles, and say, well, this is the teaching of Paul. And we can take the book of Acts and say, well, here is, um, you know, a, an account of Paul's missionary journey as, and who Paul was as a first century missionary. And we can say both of those things are important and that they tell us what they aim to tell us <laughs> rather than trying to construct some kind of systematic theology based on those. Systematics is important, but that, of course, is going to come later. And uh, Paul probably... I mean, I, I would just say Paul wasn't a systematic theologian. That's not, he was a first century missionary. Um, he's a you know, revolutionary teacher in some ways. He's a teacher of moral ethics. Uh, he's, that's how many first, uh, second century people thought of the Apostle Paul. He's sort of a moralistic teacher. He's, te- he's an evangelist. He's proclaiming the gospel. Um, but we don't necessarily have to think of him in terms of a systematic theologian. Like what we start to see in people like Irenaeus, who actually does have well-defined opponents that he's writing against and that he's constructing systematic theologies to be able to uh, put forward a version of Christianity that, you know, we still adhere to today.
1: We just solved Paul. We solved solved the New Testament.
0: Oh, I'm so glad, John, you brought this... uh... No, it was
1: wonderful. Paul, do you want to direct our listeners if they would like to help out or find more about forging caution? We are
0: dependent upon support from people that listen if you go to our web page there is two places you can donate through outreach international the donate button where that is there we also have a patreon page if you would like to become an active member of the forging plowshares community you through that uh, patreon page you can uh, communicate with me directly if you have something that you would like to talk about, a topic that you have questions about, that through our Patreon members we take feedback and information. We also then, through the Patreon, we, we do other activities, depending on the level of membership. If you would like to join our book club, that we do uh, book readings together. We have the uh, Plowshares Bible Institute, The next uh, class offering is on the books of Ephesians and Philemon, which we're reading together. You can go to PBI and look at the applications and and our catalog there.
1: Very good, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. A lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.